I want to welcome everyone to the First Church Podcast. I am here with uh, my friend, Pastor Brendan Glass, and uh, we are discussing Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Um, Today we're going to be talking about fear, and I think if you have ever dealt with fear, um, personally, or maybe even like people who have been bullied, uh, uh, feel like, um, or have been oppressed in any way whatsoever, uh, this I think is going to be um, very helpful for you. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. I was kind of meditating on what he had to say in this chapter before you even got here, mm-hmm. and just some of my own insecurities and fears. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I, I don't know—is he a doctor? What Doctor Thurman? <laughs> I, I don't know what Pastor Thurman. I have yeah. no idea has to say about fear. Is um, j- it's just really good. And so uh, I hope uh, you'll enjoy uh, our discussion of. It. I want to begin with actually. I'm just going to read this first paragraph here. It says, fear is one of the persistent hounds of hell that dog the footsteps of the poor, the dispossessed, and the disinherited. Just in case you forgot, um, Thurman is writing to what Jesus has to say with those who have their backs up against the wall um, and whom he categorizes as the poor, the dispossessed, and disinherited. Um, So I wanted to remind you of that. There's nothing new, I'm continuing the quote here, there's nothing new or recent about fear. It is doubtless as old as the life of man on the planet. Fears are of many kinds, fear of, fear of objects, fear of people, fear of the future, fear of nature, fear of the unknown, fear of old age, fear of disease, and fear of life itself. Then there is fear which has to do with aspects of experience and detailed states of mind. Our homes, institutions, prisons, churches are all crowded with people who are hounded uh, by day and harrowed by night because some fear lurks ready to spring into action as soon as one is alone or as soon as the lights go out, or as soon as one's social defenses are temporarily removed. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah, this 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 chapter, I will say, was probably one of my favorite chapters. Um, and a lot of times, you know, people might be looking at it like, okay, we're, we're still trying to get, to, what's the flow of Howard Thurman? What's the flow of this book? Because, you know, is he talking about civil rights? Is he talking about rights for the poor? What is he talking about now? It's about fear. So is it, you know, like a universal discussion on fear? Um, and you really have to read through the whole book to kind of see how it all kind of trends together. Mm-hmm. Which um, we're going to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so stick with us yeah. on these podcasts. Yeah. Um, but what I, I guess the best way to kind of uh, get us into today's discussion is just kind of think about what we're dealing with right now, Corona. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the coronavirus, there is this virus that's you know, we, it has kind of impacted our entire lives. It has mm-hmm. kind of told us how to live, where to go, how to interact with people. Um, and what Howard Thurman is doing, it's saying is fear is very similar to that. Mm-hmm. It impacts how we live, how we act, how we determine. It's just a force. Yeah. You know, um, coronavirus is obvious, obviously not between the two of us right now. But we're still constantly thinking about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's impacting and it's interact. Even though it's not here in this room, even though Mm -hmm. it's not present. Yeah. It's not a real thing in between the two of us. Um, but it is, we hope it's not. We hope it's not. We're just going to say it's not. We're going to say it's not. Next week, if I'm not here. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so it's just that it's just it's a force. And it's a force that requires respect. It's a force that requires a response. It's a force that requires uh, some type of uh, it just it just requires of us to respond to it, and that's what this chapter is about. Like how fear impacts us, the disinherited, those with the backs up against the wall, in particular. So this is a powerful chapter. Man. Yeah. So uh, a few things. Obviously, he's writing before the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and so. Um, you just talked about how even the coronavirus restricts us from going where we want to go or doing what we want to do and all those sorts of things. And so he, growing up in Florida, uh, dealt with Jim Crow, which Mm -hmm. actually constricted him from going where he wanted to go, do what he wanted to do. And um, uh, those are dark skin, right? Right. And so he writes from that perspective. But also, as I think you mentioned, like this is just, it's going to be, I think, really relevant for just anyone Mm -hmm. because we all deal with fear we all even like are restricted or restrict ourselves from fears that we have or have Mm -hmm. been put on us by other people Mm -hmm. um one of the things that one of the points that really struck out to me 
um, that that fear does to people is it robs them of their dignity. Yes. Uh, and so I, I want to talk about that here um, with you for for a moment. Um, he says, even in such such even in such a circumstance, it is not the fear of death that is most often at work; it is the deep humiliation of um, arising from dying without the benefit of cause or purpose, and then no high end is served. And so he's talking about, and in, in my book, so Brendan, your your ten pages is different. My, this is the book twenty eight or page twenty eight, but um, you know he he's kind of talking about like if you were. Uh, if you're unable to kind of stand up for yourself and you know you're just going to kind of be either persecuted or, or die basically kind of for no reason mm-hmm. um, and people are putting you down, that sense of of not being able to kind of fight back or if it's not even worth it just robs a person of their identity and keeps a person from um, being who they should be mm-hmm. uh, as a person. It basically just strips them of self re- self-respect, personal dignity, um, in which it actually, he said, basically says he robs a man of being a man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, maybe, what, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I, yeah, the, uh, that's a portion where I underlined in preparing for today's discussion mm-hmm. as well. Um, first sentence, second paragraph, and such physical violence, the contemptuous disregard for personhood is the fact that is degrading. And this very eloquently puts words to what we have been dealing with in this country. And what I like Howard Thurman is doing is he's taking something that is not just like this concept of fear is not something that is specific to the disinherited, like you said, or those Mm -hmm. that we all experience it. So it's something that we all should be able to relate to. And what he's saying in the sentences that I just read, and what, and you know, a little bit even what you just read, is pretty much the, really the cry of the Black Lives Matter movement. Hmm. It's the cry. Like the cry hmm. is, it is something is wrong. You know, when there is this inherent feeling of fear when I walk into certain environments, and that and the establishment seems to not care to change that mm-hmm. you know um there's no there's no recognition that wait something's a little off here yeah when there's this inherent fear and the fear is my life can be taken i can't take i can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. you know my my livelihood can be taken i mean and that's the constant fear of those who are disinherited now all of us have that type of fear to a certain extent mm-hmm. um in, in different contexts um but he just so eloquently puts it that way and i think that if this type of dialogue were to take place and more people will realize, wait a minute, this is a universal problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, specific in this culture, this community, it manifests that particular way. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the inability to have a quote unquote fair fight yeah. <laughs> in certain instances. Um, when you walk into the you know, when you step into the environment and know this fight is not fair i can't do anything about it yeah that's that's going to rise up in you a sense of fear and what he so eloquently puts in this chapter like that is a constant for certain individuals that is a constant feeling yeah and he folks. he addresses it from like a psychological spiritual standpoint mm-hmm. um which I, I think is really inter- interesting and helpful helpful for us all um and one of the things too like when i when i read from him, I don't disagree that the Black Lives Matter movement may have come out of like this kind of feeling, but he does come to, I think, different solutions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, Maybe, maybe not. Maybe as we discuss this, you can even kind of bring that up. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So I might be completely wrong about that. So you can speak into (laughs) that a little bit. Um, So one of the things he does as after he, he talks about that, he goes into talking about David and Goliath. This is one of the areas I think he's really stretching. Like this is, we talked about that a little bit last week. Like it's some places it's like, "Ah, yeah, I'm not sure. Like (laughs) um, we won't even go into it a little bit, but um, you can read it for yourself if you're curious about that. Um, But then he actually gives this illustration of kind of what fear looks like in society. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially if you're afraid of certain types of people or certain places. And he gives an illustration of this dog he grew Mm -hmm. up around. Yes. And every time it went to a particular place or area where it had 
been abused in the past, mm -hmm. it yelped mm -hmm. or like kind of cowered. Um, and it, it just talked, he, he talks about basically how, um, because of what happened to this dog in the past, he, he now behaves a mm -hmm. certain way every time he's around, yeah. um, a certain place mm -hmm. yeah. or, or a certain person. Uh, and it's, it's ch fundamentally changed the dog, mm, yeah. uh, and what he's willing to do or where he's wanting, where he wants to go and all of those sorts of things. And because the dog had experienced violence where the dog was obviously unequally matched, right. um, in this point, in this, in this case by another human or by, by its owner. Um, so that, that response takes place. He says, such is the role of the threat of violence that is rooted in the past experience, actual or reported, which tends to guarantee the present reaction of fear. Um, so his goal is to help people basically kind of get over, if that's like you in any any way, um, or, or if that's kind of what you're used to, he wants to help people to kind of move past that yeah. cowering. Um, and uh, so... Do you, I don't know, do you see a need for that? I, I definitely think, so, I, you know, what what is being described is, you know, fear kind of, the manifestation of fear is the reaction to traumatic experience, you know, traumatic experience. And this is where there's a lot of times a disconnect, especially mm -hmm. when we start talking about issues of socioeconomic uh, justice racial justice, injustices, any of that, racism, any of that stuff. That's where sometimes there's a disconnect because it's, well, Pastor Brendan, you didn't grow up with segregated bathrooms. You didn't grow up with segregated water fountains. Yeah. Um, so that's where sometimes there's that disconnect of, well, why are you so passionate? Why, do you, why are you making such a big deal out of it? There, this is not your experience. Um, and what is discredited is what's passed down from generation to generation, yeah. uh -huh. you know, and that is something that is so funny to me because we accept that when it comes to certain things, but not other things. Mm -hmm. So we accept that when we, you know, we're taking our college courses or we're looking at videos on the internet and it's talking about, well, yeah, if you grew up in an abusive household, you're, you know, four times more likely to abuse, you know, to abuse your children as someone who, you know, didn't. And, you know, it's just that type of stuff where it's just like, you know, it this type of trauma can transfer down, you know, and it transfers down in a different way. You know, I you will witness your parents act fearful in a particular way. You will witness them respond differently in certain interactions with authority figures that, you know, they're more relaxed and more comfortable with uh -huh. their peers. You know, and what is that? That's that force of fear, because in this environment, I can only do so much in this mm -hmm. environment. I can I only I, my freedom is limited. However, in this environment over here, I'm OK. So mm -hmm. it's just like, you know, with the dog, you know, in this environment, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine. But the moment you remind me of the trauma I've gone through, you know, now I'm responding in my fear. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely something that, uh, you know, definitely something that he, he you know, once again, just as, as he always does, he takes something and he just gives it an explanation and a definition and a characterization even um, that beautifully describes the experience that most people have. Yeah. 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 He, he says basically there's always a physical response to fear mm -hmm. um, and we internalize the the situation that put us or the, the time that we were abused or harmed or embarrassed, yeah. humiliated, whatever it might be, whatever, whatever we're afraid of. And then there's an emotional response and a physical response to when those stimuli are, mm -hmm. are reintroduced or when we think we're put in a position where that might be a case. And yeah. so, you know, I think about like sexual assault victims yeah, exactly. or, or whatever. And, and when they're around, like if it's a woman, when they're around certain men or, you know, my wife talks about this with me, like, I've never been afraid to be in an elevator with somebody. Mm -hmm. um, my wife's not a sexual assault victim, but like just the the idea that like, oh, this could be a dangerous position. Mm -hmm. And then you think about maybe somebody who has been, they're putting put in that position with a man and a woman um, and they automatically start thinking yeah. differently. Um, uh, and then you you spoke, spoke about the idea too that um, 
this is often passed down, like our fears are passed down or even our lived experience is passed down into the next generation. And so he, he, he talks about that, obviously, and he moves kind of on to the next illustration after the dog. He gets to another illustration with an animal, mm-hmm. um, the movie Bambi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and yep. <laughs> he, he talks about the father. And it's been a long time since I've seen Bambi. I try not to watch it because I don't want to feel guilty about deer hunting. Um, <laughs> but, like, but like he talks about the father staying with Bambi yeah. as long as he possibly can and teaching Bambi how to right, how to avoid the hunters mm-hmm. um, until he feels like Bambi rightly understands how to get along in the world like right how 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 not to be harmed in the world before the father leaves van beside now that Um, resonates with african-americans so yeah talk about that even so but obviously like talk about that even like with the maybe the talk with police or whatever because i mean even if right uh things have gotten a lot better Mm -hmm. I, i think they have and maybe you can speak into you don't think they have but if that trauma has been passed down and you're still more likely to be pulled over or or it go wrong or whatever like so how has that worked yeah. like through the generations so yeah so mm-hmm. first let me speak say something that you mm-hmm. said you know um you said you think things have gotten better and you know that's that's one of those areas where there's insecurity to make that statement especially mm-hmm. with the african-americans yeah. as an african-american i would say things have gotten better mm-hmm. okay Things are just not where they should be. Okay. And whenever yeah. things are not where they should be, you know, we cannot let ourselves off the hook. You mm-hmm. know, so if I'm yeah. an F student, yeah, <laughs> and you know, all of a sudden, you know, I raise that F up to a D. All right, I'm not off the hook. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I still got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, but you know, cause, and one example that I that, that I often give is you know between 1865 and like 1960-something, there were 4,000 documented lynchings. Mm-hmm. It's like around 4,000 documented lynchings in the United States of America. Okay, all right. we don't have that type of stuff anymore. So there, mm-hmm. we have improved a little bit. Another interesting tidbit <laughs> that I like to tell people <laughs> is when it comes to those lynchings, um, it was uh, 4,000, about like 1,200 were white men that were lynched. Mm-hmm. White people that were lynched for the cause of civil rights. Yeah. You know, um, so uh, to the point, when it comes to like that passed down trauma, I can, you know, we can talk about the police, but let's talk, let's go back, let's go back to slavery, mm-hmm. you know, go back to slavery and how um, one of the fears of a parent was a slave mom in particular was their children being sold away. So one of the things that children were, trained to do because of that fear was to always be quiet always be invisible Hmm. always make yourself just a non-problem you know master come this way you go the other way you know yeah and you have there's a certain way you have to carry yourself because it won't take long for master more specifically master's wife to sell you away if they don't like you, if you're a problem or anything like that, and that is a traumatic experience mm-hmm. for these slave women. Okay, yeah. so we get out of slavery now in the Jim Crow era, era, and guess what? That trauma is still there. Mm-hmm. We still have to act a certain way around yeah. white folk, you know. Um, and even though the threat of being sold away is not there, there's still this training how you're supposed to act around white people, how you're supposed to act around the white people in authority over you. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes this is a this is a thing that carries with them their entire lives. Yeah. So I have to say, I have to say no, sir, yes, sir, and allow you to call me boy or gal mm-hmm. because of the passed down trauma of fear of what would happen to me if you don't. If I don't. Mm-hmm. You know, and so yeah. like yeah, I was raised by my father uh-huh. who said when you if ever you get pulled over. This is how you're supposed to act. Why? Because of that fear. That fear. You can't talk. You can't talk to him like a man. You can't object. You can't do any of that other stuff because of something in the past that has been passed down through the generation that says that is a way to get yourself hurt. Yeah, which is different to a certain extent, right? I, obviously, like how I 
was taught to interact with the police. Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't, I was taught to respect the police, um, not to fear them. Right. If that made sense. Yeah. That makes, makes sense. sense. You know, so yes, sir. No, ma'am. That sort of thing. But even then it wasn't like, I don't, that wasn't beat into me or anything. It was just kind of like, Hey, you should be respectful right. towards the authorities. Mm. Um, but it wasn't like a, a fear. I think it, whenever anybody's been pulled over, I think we're fear of getting, we're afraid yeah. of getting into trouble or whatever, but that's a different, yeah, it's different. It's, it's different. It's different being afraid. I'm gonna get a ticket, get in trouble, have my parents called as opposed to afraid that I might die. Mm-hmm. So, and he talks about this in the book. You know, uh, he talks about this in this chapter and this is the unfortunate consequence. This is the unfortunate thing that happens. It's like when fear happens, you know, our physical response is those chemical hormones inside of us that makes us feel fear of fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, why are they running? Why don't you just comply? Why do something took fear took over? Yeah. And they're running, you know, and it's just like instead of chasing sometimes i'm not saying let the criminal go yeah but sometimes it's why do they feel compelled to run Mm -hmm. and if there's some way that we can let these people know in the moment you don't have to run yeah (laughs) you don't have to run then maybe it's a little bit different but he says it's that fight or flight and even when sometimes they're wrestling and stuff like that and why are you why are you wrestling with the police? That's how high the fear is. Mm-hmm. They're not saying, "Oh, let me, I want to commit suicide by police." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. that's just those psychological factors that we apply to everywhere else, except for these matters where there's these unfortunate incidences with the police. And by the way, keep listening because he comes to solutions to this. Yes. It's not just like, like <laughs> so. It's not one of those things like, A well, okay, well, solution. what are the solutions A to not running or not fighting, right? A because he actually solution. he discourages both. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but you have to. He's he's trying to get people to a place where it's where you're actually kind of moving against your instincts based yeah. on your faith and yeah. belief and trust in Christ. And so, hold on a second. Um, <laughs> And, and we'll get to that uh, on this. Uh, and maybe you want to speak into this or not, or we'll just leave it in this quote as it is. It says, artificial limits, limitations, this is on page 31, are placed upon them restricting freedom of movement, of employment, and of participation in the common life. These limitations are given formal and informal expression in general or specific policies of separateness or segregation. These policies tend to freeze the social status of the insecure. Um and so I guess we're going to talk about, too, how to, how to get beyond that because there's, there's not legalized segregation anymore. Right. Um, uh, and maybe you can talk about ways you may, you may feel like it's still expressed in different ways if you want. Um, but also, you know, again, even on a, on a personal level, just anybody who's insecure, he's trying to help mm-hmm. overcome their fears and, and even see like some of these barriers, yes, they may be real barriers. They even may be physical. They may even be codified in the law mm-hmm. uh, and whatsoever or, or any of those sorts of things. So how do we, how do we overcome them? Yeah. I mean, and that's, this is a great discussion, man, yeah. because that's, that's mm-hmm. very well-rounded, very complete uh, arguments, you know, is what, Howard Thurman does, you know, he present, he does a great job of presenting problem and solution, problem and solution, and making it more than just a black white thing, but a universal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that right there is just once again him just expanding the boundaries in which fear can govern. Because hmm. what happens is we think fear, you know, oh yeah, I'm afraid of dying oh yeah i'm afraid of this i'm afraid of that but like i said earlier he's talking about that force of fear that will impact you or negatively impact you in particular realms and you didn't even recognize it was fear (laughs) you didn't even know it was fear you just feel intimidated you just feel like you know you just feel like you're stepping into the ring unprepared to fight you just feel like that and that shuts down certain aspects of your being and that's where it is so this that's where fear is so disheartening it's just like i 
am in a room with, you know, if I'm an African-American or I'm a minority or, you know, if I'm someone that is low on the socioeconomic scale as a white person. Yeah. And I am in this room with all these different applicants for this particular jobs. I feel different than everybody here. Mm-hmm. Hillbilly Elegy. Yeah. You familiar with that? Love the book. Yeah, it describes so well. This is why it describes my mom's side of the family to a T. Wow. I'm from I'm from Middletown, Germantown. Okay, ah. yeah, yeah. So like, like yeah. my family's from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's I was part of the the that migration, right? Yeah. I, I just got done reading. Uh, um, uh, um, oh my goodness, why can't I think of the name of the book? The Warmth of Other Suns. So I just okay. I, I just read about the Great Migration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that describes like the migration of. The hillbillies, right? From, yeah, from yeah. Kentucky up to Ohio, mm-hmm. yeah. um, especially the Dayton area. Yeah, so it was a great yeah. book. My dad told me to read the book. Mm-hmm. I, I'm working through it, but yeah. they made a Netflix movie of it. Yeah. So I watched that, yeah. and there's a perfect scene uh-huh. where you see that, you know what I mean, yeah. where J.D., he's at a dinner, you know, trying yeah. to get a potential job, and he was the individual that was not cultured. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he wasn't cultured at this particular dinner, and at that point in time, you know, it was really obvious to him in that moment mm-hmm. that I don't, he wasn't, I don't feel like I'm on the same level. Yeah. And that impacted him to a certain extent now because he is who he was, yeah. you know, he, he, for whatever reason, had the ability to defend himself and stand up for himself. Mm-hmm. Everybody has that. And, and see, and this is why, and this is kind of a, a little bit of an offshoot, but very similar is is why I am frustrated, and I think a lot of people are frustrated a little bit with the rise of identity politics mm. over yeah. even socioeconomic uh, identity. Yeah. Um, because I do think, it, don't get me wrong, like the black experience has been different than the white poor experience. But I think, like when you read, like when you read, yeah. when you read the warmth of other sons, they're yeah. they're migrating for completely different reasons. Right. Don't get me wrong, like they're coming to Middletown even or, or Dayton, and they're probably getting left out of certain jobs that the white people are from Kentucky are probably getting. But they're they're all leaving somewhat for the same reasons to have a better life. Right. They may or may not have achieved it through uh, getting jobs at places like. Uh, Frigidaire, General Motors, and what so and and so forth, or AK Steel, yeah. you know, in that book. Yeah. But then those companies leave or they downsize, yep. and so the experience from a socioeconomic standpoint, or even leaving family behind back home in the hills mm-hmm. of Kentucky, or uh, uh, in the the plains of Alabama or Mississippi, mm-hmm. um, or whatever that might be, is actually kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Like we're dealing with some of those people, like my family and others deal with have dealt similarly not completely has not been the same experience um uh and so i I would i would not go there but i think right like that human experience is something that we all share and and so somebody like thurman speaks into that uh and so yeah not i think looking at how groups have been fundamentally oppressed or or disinherited is is important for everybody but it's like I do feel like a lot of like a lot of society is like actually we're actually kind of missing out on a lot of what we have in common to the struggle, like the human struggle. Josh, you're preaching uh, now. Yeah, you're preaching. And the word that it, it would be great if that word is something that the church would identify and deal with that mm-hmm. phrase, rather identity politics, because mm-hmm. that's all it is. Yeah. So let's go back to. You know, Howard Thurman indirectly addresses identity politics, indirectly in his mm-hmm. writings. Martin Luther King kind of hit it head on mm-hmm. in a lot of his writings, and we still don't get it. The problem is you have two impoverished people, one black, one white. They're impoverished because the system is set up in a way that certain people have certain advantages, other people do not have advantages. But what the system messed around and did, and some of your conspiracy theorists will say was Mm -hmm. intentional, is it said the impoverished white man is superior to the impoverished black man. Mm. So those two were pitted against each other. Yeah, exactly. 100%. (laughs) Like, we were taught to not like each other. Exactly. Like, Like, exactly. And that is the identity politics. And Martin Luther King actually talks about that. He Mm -hmm. was like, the poor white man... Yeah. is the exact same as the poor black man but the difference is 
you are taught and trained to view me as the reason you are the poor white man, mm-hmm. which yeah. is, you know, what made the rise, you know, what made the rise of the Ku Klux Klan so prominent. The reason you are struggling right now, oh, poor Southern black man, is because of all these free blacks right now. And that is, if we could really just identify that and attack yeah. that, it would create a unity. Some people say that's the real reason. I mean, I'm not going to get into conspiracy theories yeah. and say that <laughs> the government killed Martin Luther King. Yeah. But my mom said this. My mom told me this when I was young. It was like, yeah. And um, in this book, uh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh-huh. Um, it was uh, Martin Luther King's Last Epics, name of the book. can't remember Arthur. But he talks about it as well. It was like, you know, they did not have a problem with Martin Luther King as long as he was going after Bull Connor and the racist sheriffs of the mm-hmm. South. They didn't have a problem. But once he turned his attention to the inequities of the economic systems, oh, he got to go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was about to organize a march larger than the March on Washington. It was about to be. The, it was going to be the Poor People's March, mm-hmm. and the goal was to have a million people marching on Washington D.C. for economic justice in this country. Mm-hmm. Oh, he had to go. Yeah, <laughs> because he's going to unify. He yeah. was going, his goal was let's show that poor blacks, poor whites, poor Latinos, poor Asians are all the same. Unify them? Oh, no. They weren't having that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now we're getting into economics, which is a different thing, and it's very difficult to like try to figure yeah, out that and all of those sorts of things. Um, but, yeah, uh, uh, that's why, like, when I read this book, too, it's not like, like, it, it, it impacts yeah. me not just from, like, well, it, one, it does make me try to understand the black experience to mm-hmm. a certain extent, which I, I haven't lived it. Like I'm not going to completely understand it. Um, but also it's like, man, this is, this is good for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And this is good for anybody to read. And I think people are searching for this. Uh, have you heard of Jordan Peterson? Yes. Okay. Oh yeah. So yeah, right. He's basically like a, a pop uh, intellectual right mm-hmm. now. Um, his, his book, 12 Rules for Life, is a New York Times bestseller. And I, I don't know, it might still be a bestseller. But his first rule is stand up straight with your shoulders back. Mm-hmm. Like young people, especially young men, are buying that book like crazy mm-hmm. because nobody is teaching them or nobody is giving them like dignity and the self-worth that they, they need to right. get along in the world. Right. Like we are so afraid to... And, and what I believe, right, be who God has called us to be and do what God has called us to do. Um, and the reasons for it are, are, are complex. Um, uh, but, right, we don't, have, we don't have the courage that it takes to get through this world yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so he, he addresses yeah. it from a psychological standpoint, from a psychologist standpoint, mm-hmm. um, like, I think Thurman's better, right? Like, <laughs> like because he's yeah. he's going to address it from a higher place. Yes. Um, than Dr. Peterson does, although I would still recommend reading it. <laughs> yeah. uh, what he has to say, and even even applying some of those principles, even if you decide like, hey, yeah, I'm not a Christian, and I, I don't believe mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. Thurman has to say or or what you pastors have to say. Like, I, I just think I, I think it's helpful. It's extremely helpful. Um, but yeah. I, I'm very much aware, and I do appreciate the boldness of Peterson's approach to just kind of that in-your-face, look, here's what the problems are. Let's stop acting like it's not a problem. Let's stop acting yeah. like certain things are okay. Well, it's mm-hmm. kind of commonsensical. Oh, yeah. You know? Now, that's the difference. Like, Thurm is not commonsensical. Like, his yeah, yeah, not- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> his stuff, you got to really, really, like, dig into. It's really, uh, uh, I mean, it's simple, but it's not common sense, you know, just like yeah. Jesus Christ's ministry was mm-hmm. simple, but it was not common sense. Mm-hmm. It was like, listen to me. And it's very enlightening. Yeah. But oh, yeah, man. So, yeah, he's about to I guess we're about to get yeah, into we're it. about to get into it. <laughs> Actually, like on page 36, I think 46 or 26 in your book, it says the crucial question then is this. Is there any help to be found in the religion of Jesus that can be of value here? OK. And then he goes on to say, obviously, this is just interesting here. Obviously, if the strong put forth a great redemptive effort to change the social, political, and economic arrangements in which they seem to find their base of security, the whole picture would be altered. So, you know, for those who say, well, he's Thurman is kind of toothless or whatever, he doesn't want any 
anybody to institute any real change or anything like that and just work on the personal. That's not the case. Right. It's just he is writing to individual persons to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, here, that's that's not what he's trying to address. Um, he's, so, and then he goes, he goes on to say, did Jesus deal with this kind of fear? If so, how did he do it? It's not merely what did he say, even though his words are important clues to us. So then he goes in. And this is why, like, I don't feel like he needed to even talk about David and Goliath because there's plenty of t- there's yeah. plenty of texts that talk about yeah. um, uh, how to address this fear. And just in case you're wondering, um, as I'm talking about the David and Goliath thing, you can read it, but he, he, he kind of makes Goliath out to as, as one who dies from fear mm-hmm. of David. Yeah. I'm just not sure that's there in the text. Um, so a little bit of a uh, it's a stretch. imagination. Yeah, and, you know, I, and I, in sermons, I think you can have that a little oh, yeah, bit, right? Course, like you course. could, but I'm just not sure that's the intent of the story. <laughs> um, but you know, so he quotes he quotes here um, Matthew uh, mm-hmm. out of the Sermon on the Mount. And for those of you, I'm not going to read it all, but um, out of Matthew six, he says, therefore. I say unto you, take no thought of your life or what you shall eat or what you shall drink and mm-hmm. so forth. Then he goes on and basically says like, hey, Jesus tells us that God takes care of the birds. He takes care of the grass. He's going to take care of you. So don't be anxious about to, today or um, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Um, if you trust me today, that's how you live out the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so this is how he begins to uh, address Fear by getting people into these scriptures and meditating on these scriptures. And then he says this, this idea that God is mindful of the individual is of tremendous import in dealing with fear as a disease. And so mm. he reads these texts and his, the conclusion that he comes to is that God cares about you yes. as an individual person. Yes. Um, uh, you want to go with that, and then sure. I'll, I'll read kind of maybe what it says. That all this depends on as far as our mental health is concerned, or you can just get into it. No, I'm just going to respond to what you said, man. Uh, that is what, you know, I read this book. I don't know how many, let me see. I was, I, was, I read this book first time probably about 10 years ago, maybe a little over 10 years ago. And, you know, my mentor, my bishop, um, Johnson, told me to read this book. And I'm reading it. I'm like, okay, uh, wordy, uh, mumble jumbo, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Okay, interesting stuff on fear. But then we get to this part about dignity mm-hmm. and how what Jesus Christ did that was more powerful than anything else was give dignity back to those whose dignity was stripped from. And I said, whoa. And that's what made me a fan of Howard Thurman at that point because we only think of Jesus Christ as coming to give us eternal life. Mm. That's the only way I ever saw Jesus Christ. Yeah. I only saw Jesus Christ as providing the pie in the sky so we'll be okay in the great by and by. Like, that's <laughs> all I knew of Jesus. And it's like, who was his audience? What was the type of stuff that he was saying? Yeah, this is a audience? Sermon on the Mount. So he's actually preaching right here. Jesus yes. is preaching to people. So who's he preaching to? Most likely? He's preaching to poor, the outcasts, mm-hmm. the disenfranchised, those who were probably on the fringes. He's preaching to some people who probably was more into the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the temple worship. He's preaching to all these people. Some people were probably displaced. He's preaching to all kinds of, you know, the lepers were, if the lepers were hearing about this guy, mm-hmm. then this means that these are people that were close to the fringes of the outcasts. Yeah. We're listening to this dude and they're walking away like, man, I'm important too. Yeah. And he was giving people dignity. And it was that dignity that, like God cares about me. I like he doesn't just me. care yes. about the Pharisee. He doesn't just right. care about the Sadducee. Right. He doesn't just care about the Roman or whatever that seems to be above me or, right. or whatever. Yeah. Because in this period of time, you know, the idea was, you know, everything has a spiritual cause. Every effect has a spiritual cause. It's not like us when we're post-enlightenment. Everything is scientific. Everything is hypothesis. Blah, blah, blah. So it's like if I'm poor, that's because God wants you poor. If you're lesser, that means God wants you lesser. If you are sick, God wants you sick. You got to figure out, you know, Jesus, who's 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 sin that this man is born blind? Yeah. You know, that was the mindset of the people at that particular time. And Jesus was like, whoa, no, God loves y'all. Mm-hmm. He loves you. You're just caught up in a world that's broken. Yeah. But I am here to provide life for even you. And man, I can only imagine what people felt listening to these words of life that they've never heard before. Yeah. Now, 
I don't know what they received from, you know, you know, you know, because it was always said, uh, the prophets look forward to these days. The prophet, I don't know if they thought that that's what the prophet was, you know, the words were going to come from the Messiah in this form that's going to give them dignity. Yeah. Or were they so thinking that the Messiah was going to be another David character that was going to be outward, but Jesus yeah. doing an inward work in these That the, the dignity was actually going to come from the government that would be established through right. Israel, or is it yeah. going to be established another way, kind of a back way here? Yeah. And to be honest, like Jesus seems to choose the back way. Like, like <laughs> you know, like to me, I mean, yeah. he didn't set up a government. Like right. he didn't restore Israel to its former glory. Right. I mean, he didn't. Mm-mm. Right. Mm-mm. Like so, I mean, that's something for us to think about and deal with. Um. Uh. So, so here's the he says then, um, our mental health, our psychological mm-hmm. health, our spiritual health here. It depends on us being able to answer these two questions concerning oh. fear: Who am I, and what am I? Who am I, and what am I? You want to speak into let's let's talk about the first question. How this helps us deal with fear. Answering this question, who am I? What does he say there? You want to speak into that? If not, I got something we can just go with here. Well, let me see if this goes with my part. Yeah, man. So I don't want to go too far ahead, but when it comes to the who am I, you know, he is speaking about, you know, you are, like you said before, first and foremost, more important than anything else, a beloved child of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what he says, right? God tends to stabilize the ego's mm-hmm. results. New courage, fearlessness, and power on the awareness. I, actually, I didn't read the first part of the sentence. So I'll read the first part of the sentence now. The awareness of being a child of God tends to stabilize us, Man. which gives us courage, fearlessness, and power. Man. When he said that, like that right there, it tends to stabilize us. Now, mm-hmm. in order for us to stabilize us, we actually have to more, more than intellectually grasp that revelation, mm-hmm. but we have to eat that revelation yeah it has to be real that's where people i believe are missing it in these Mm -hmm. days and why you know we're struggling which is why i said earlier this gives the church a lot of room to for the gospel where we can more than intellectually tell people you are create you are a child of god Mm -hmm. if we we can go out to 100 people right now in akron and say are you a child of god and 90 of them probably say yes Mm, yeah yeah (laughs) Oh, yes, I, I, I have a relationship with God. I'm a child of God. I'm a child yeah. of God. But they they don't have that yeah. stabilized dignity, that stabilized yeah. ego. You yeah. Know, Why aren't you walking in it, yeah. right? Like, how how are, how are you showing that? And not, not in an egotistical sort of way, but right. what as a child of God, if you believe that, what would you do that you're not currently doing? Exactly. And there's so much room. Uh-huh. Or who would you be that you currently are? And we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah, but yeah. exactly. Um, but yeah, just you are a child of God, and just uh-huh. Jesus made people feel that way. Yeah, and I believe that is what uh, Howard Thurman mm-hmm. is imploring us to receive and to preach mm-hmm. that you are a child of God. I yep. um, go ahead. I uh, you know we have a marriage ministry at our church, and um, you know we are doing it meeting through Zoom, and you know I told him how I just came back from. You know, Miami, I was down in Miami for a little bit. And Miami is like, man, Miami and California, exotic cars, dollars $500,000 cars everywhere. Yeah. And one day I was looking at one of these Mercedes Benzes and I said, who says that car is worth $150,000? Yeah. Like, why do we go along with that? Why do we say this car is worth $150,000 and this car over here is worth $20,000? Like, why do we go along with that? Who says it? And then I just felt... It in my spirit deposited the manufacturer says it's worth it, mm-hmm. and because we respect the manufacturer, if he says it's going it's worth that amount, we're going to go with it. Be worth that amount. Now watch this: if you put out a hundred fifty thousand dollar car, Mercedes puts out a hundred fifty thousand dollar car, and nobody buys it, Mercedes is not going to reduce the price because to Mercedes this car is worth this price. Status symbol. It's it's a status symbol for them. So I say the same thing is true of God and how he views Mm -hmm. us. Who says we have value? God does. No matter what society tells us, no matter what the world tells us, no matter even what you tell yourself, just because I might not feel like I have value doesn't mean that God does not feel that. And that's something that I really believe Thurman is saying needs to be deeply deposited into people. Yeah. And we have to preach that. We have to give that. And that is where the church 
has an opportunity, in my opinion, to bring restoration in all these broken areas of our society. First and foremost, let's give people that sense of dignity that you're a child of God. Yeah, and I think he addresses something that's really important for us to keep in mind, too, as pastors in the church. If we don't do it, somebody else will. Ooh. Because we are yeah. all, we, yes. every person is every person is seeking after this. So every person is seeking after significance. Every person, we all have the image of God in us. Yeah. And so I think whenever somebody tells us there's an opportunity for significance, right, we're drawn mm, yes. to that person or that group mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Thurman knew this because Jesus knew this, mm -hmm. um, but Jesus actually makes a, quali a qualifying statement that it's true. Like God gives you, you are significant to God. Mm -hmm. uh, he goes into just r the reality of what happened with the Hitler Youth, and I wouldn't yeah. just say Hitler Youth. I would say all of Germany yeah. is that Hitler shows up, and they're in an interesting economic situation mm -hmm. uh, because of all the the tariffs and stuff that it were put on Germany at the time, and. He basically says, you have been made to feel insignificant by the rest of the world. I will make you significant. Yep. Um, and so what happens? People do a lot of crazy things that they, they would otherwise never do. Yeah. And so the church has an opportunity to call people into something better. Right. Um, something that's divinely true, that you are made in the image of God. And as image bearers, uh, you are a child of God, somebody who is welcomed into God's family through Jesus Christ. And so this relationship now changes all other relationships. Yes. It, it changes the way you, you, you do everything. Um, and it actually takes away fear because it gives you integrity because now your authority and your integrity doesn't even come from yourself or your own accomplishments or anything like that, but something much higher than you and any man. Mm. Right, like yeah. they're they're now. If you believe that, no person can stand over you and steal your dignity, right? Because you didn't give it to them to the, mm. in the first place. It never belonged to them in the first place. It belongs <laughs> to God and God alone. And that's what he talks about here. Yeah. And he says that that needs to be reinserted, right? He says that needs to be inserted. He's talking here in, in the context of um, the black family or yep. the black person, um, but that needs to be reinserted too into the church like yes. he's talking about this this is actually what it's going to take for the civil rights movement to happen and so mm -hmm. i think what howard howard thurman is laying the groundwork for that but not only does it take that for the civil rights movement to happen and somebody like dr king to step forward and remind uh black people specifically the black church that like you are a man right he yes. actually he actually reminded them of that right mm -hmm. in memphis um, I'm sure it happened before that or it was going on before that. But we as church leaders need to remind men and women that they are made in the image of God and yes. God cares about them personally. Yes. And I think if that's the case, like we can walk, we can walk through this world without being anxiety ridden because we believe that we are, we are loved by God. Yeah. You are, you, you preach now. Where's the offering? Where should I send the yeah, offering? Yeah. <laughs> Go to firstchurchtowners.com, <laughs> hit the donations button. Yeah, no, yeah, that yeah. was a good word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's not to say, I mean, because yeah. you, you hit that right on the head, uh -huh. and that's why uh -huh. you, you, you basically elaborated on the thesis I gave earlier, or hypothesis I gave earlier, mm -hmm. that this gives the church so much opportunity. Like, this less, like what he's imparting to us, it just shows that there's so much opportunity because you said it, and he illustrated it in here. If we don't do it, someone else will which means that that just goes to show there is those, those voids in people's lives and unfortunately some of those voids in people's lives is caused by humanity so guess what humanity cannot give your dignity but we have shown that we can take it away yeah and only god can restore that and that's good he goes, i love this quote from him there are some things worse than death yeah. to deny one's own integrity of personality and the presence of the human challenge is one of those things. Yeah. The idea that I, I, most people would rather die than to have their dignity stripped from them. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and not do what they know that they're called to do within right. the power of, 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 within the dignity that God's given them. And, and I don't disagree, man. I mean, it makes me miserable. Like if I'm not doing what I think I should do, or right. if I'm, I'm living, like if I am cowardly, yeah, like yeah. not foolish, like, you know, even with the coronavirus yeah. and stuff like that, like, yeah, take precautions, whatever. 
Um, but if I'm acting cowardly and just out of fear, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I really like, I don't like myself when yeah. I do that, yeah. you know? It's not the way to live. Uh, Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. let me see if I can quote it properly. This is one of his popular quotes. I'm sure you may have heard it. He said, the person that does not have anything to die for is not fit to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like at the end of the day, if, and, and if you break that down, it basically means that to you, the highest value is your life. There's nothing greater than you than your life. If you're not willing to die for anything, that basically means that you are living, I believe, in opposition to our creation. Yeah. We are created to live for greater things. And if you're the greatest thing in your life, so much so that you won't die for anything, he says you're not fit to live. You're only going to be self-serving. Yeah. I mean, it's a narcissist. Yeah. Narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. good stuff, man. Yeah. All right. Second question here. He answers. Um, we'll keep moving because mm-hmm. it's crazy how fast time flies. Um, is what am I? Like, that's the second basic question that the disinherited, those who are dealing with fear, um, anxiety, they need to answer that question. And um, this more has to do, he says, with personal uh, achievement and ability mm-hmm. um, rather than like the innate belonging, sense of belonging and so forth. Yeah. Um, and so speak into that a little bit. What is, what maybe stuck out to you in this idea of what am I? So who am I? I'm a child of God. And then what am I? So yeah, this is, like I said, this is one of my favorite chapters and I can't remember what the page is, if you passed it or not. I think I did, but you know, when, when he, when he broke down, um, and I might be jumping around a little bit, but when he broke down the situation where he went to visit a scientist's house and he felt very, inadequate yeah it's right before this which is good grace so good because it leads into yeah, this and yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to talk about let's talk about it i don't care about time people don't have to listen to this i just talked to have a conversation and, and it was like uh, i was so intimidated and i often wonder i'm like man he wrote this book and i wonder who he was talking about i wonder if he yeah. was talking about, i wonder if he's talking about that big guy over there you yeah, know yeah. probably not but maybe but he was like i'm so intimidated and then he was like like you said earlier he he felt miserable mm-hmm he felt miserable um, because he felt like he was not really himself yeah. operating himself. So he said he thought about it. He's like, wait a minute, this dude knows more about me than science. I know more than about him than politics than social mm-hmm. issues and things of that nature. And, you know, using that as, you know, kind of the point of, you know, a, a point of just stimulating his humanity, you know, he said, you know, after that, I was fine. I was okay. And I think that is where we mess up, especially in our society, because we are so anti-God in our culture. We are so anti-theocratic in our structures that the greatest figures in our society is other people. So we put them up on these platforms. We Mm -hmm. put them on these, you know, pseudo near idolatrous stages so much for that so much so that it we don't realize but we are self-demeaning ourselves and at that one part that was so beautiful when he was like he learned to say yeah people not just people are great but people are great at something yeah (laughs) and when you just add that little small part to it then it kind of gives you a better it gives you it, it gives you a better a position to continue to operate in who you are as a person. And I like to extend that. Like I, I extended both those questions. Uh, who am I and what am I? Um, uh, as an extension of that particular portion of this chapter, because a lot of times the problem with us answering the question of what am I? It's the same thing. What am I in comparison to other people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what am I? And when I compare myself to other people, then it's, uh, Depending on how I perceive myself, I'm either going to consider myself too great or not great enough. Yeah. So, you know, with this part of the book, with that portion of the book and going into like the, the, the answering the question of what am I, you know, it really comes down to like he's been saying all throughout this portion of the chapter, what does God say about yeah. you? You know, and that's what you have to go with. What did God put inside of you? That's what you have to go with. Um, and we have to be at a place where 
you know, the what am I is not always defined by this me, my portion, my, my, my addition to it, my commentary on his words. It's not always defined by what we are doing. And that's where we get messed up in our society. Yeah. And so there's a there's an incredible balance he reaches here that I want to talk about in a second with the like, what am I the the idea of like not allowing your kind of ego to be overblown mm -hmm. while also. So if you understand the who am I, I'm a child of God, it actually allows you to be the what am I. Mm -hmm. So I think about it like the courage to try. Yeah. Because um, we all have fears, like we all have dreams, we all have different things we want to do. Uh, but we all have, have fears that keep us from trying to do those things. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, some of them are rational. Some of them are irrational. Um, they're often irrational if we feel like God has put it on our heart to, Hey, like, let's give this a try. I mean, so I, I know you have, uh, as a pastor, right? You've had to have moments in ministry where you're like, you know what? I feel like God's calling me to do this, but I better not because, yeah. or you hold back or whatever. I mean, even like this conversation, a conversation like this is difficult. Um, uh, because of all the, you know, people might listen or whatever that assumes what I believe about different things or don't believe about different things, no matter what side of any issue you're on. Um, having conversations that are for the public can, to view is a fearful thing to do. Yeah. But I'm like, hey, I like talking to people. I like learning. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't feel like I have all the answers. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm gonna give it a try. Like, I feel like this is something that people need to do if we are are going to uh, uh, be who the church should be and also just a, be a better society yeah. with people. But um, I could easily let just fear take over. Yeah. Um, and I, I know you've probably had uh, uh, that uh, maybe in your own life in different ways or whatever. Um, but, you know, the for me, you know, as I was meditating on this earlier and just thinking about it, man, if I believe that I'm a child of God and... Uh, as somebody who believes that I'm saved by, by grace through faith, uh, that I can go out and do what God has called me to do and let the chips fall where they may, because I'm a child of God, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, and, um, I can fail, like, yeah. you know, I, I can do all of these sorts of things. And, and my identity is not, it, it's not anchored and what other people think of me, but who God has declared me to be. And so like now I'm, to a certain extent, like I'm free. Yeah. Like I, I've been, I've been freed from what he calls, I think at one point he says kind of the shackles of, of fear yeah. um, to go and, and do and be confidently, confidently who I'm able to be. Now I said, there's incredible balance in all of this because I could see how somebody would say, well, does that mean you can just go do whatever you want to do and yeah. say whatever you want to say whenever you want to say it? And his response to that, um, he doesn't ask that. That question is not, he doesn't really think in those terms, but he gets there. He's like answering questions that I think people are going to ask. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And his response for that is that um, the individual the individual conviction that he is a child of God gives note of integrity to whatever he does. Right. It proves character in the sense of sure knowledge and effective performance. And so he's basically saying, and, and this is something, too, that uh, the secular world can't do. Mm. I, I don't think, right? I'm sure there are tricks <laughs> or whatever in psychology to tell people, like, hey, <laughs> let's build up your self-esteem, but by the yeah. way, let's cap it off here. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. or here, let's build up your self-esteem, but here are these lists of, of rules that will help govern your life yeah well for thurman like it's already built in until in, into your faith so yes you're a child of god yes you have uh inherent worth and dignity given to you by god yes you're covered by the grace and love of god to be who god created you to be and so you should be free from the fear that that you are bound by just because you're a human being um, or have literally been oppressed by people yeah. or are poor or whatever that might be, have your backs up against a wall. So you need to be free from that. But remember how mm. you yeah. should live in your freedom. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you should live in your freedom through the one who has freed you, which is through the integrity uh, and teachings of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and so to me, that, like, that, that fights back the narcissism that fights mm -hmm. back the like I can go do say 
and be literally whoever I want. Yeah. Um, no, that's not what he says yeah. either. No. Yeah, there's a book. I'm good at titles. Sometimes I'm horrible at the remembering the author. There's a book called True Freedom. Um, and he speaks very, he says exactly what you're saying so eloquently. Um, you know, the, 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 I'm sure many of us have heard this, uh, you know, this, this story of the, uh, what was it? Yeah, it was, it was a train. Or was it a boat? One or the two, it was a train or a boat. We'll say the train. And the train was on the tracks and the train kept looking at the cars, kept looking at the bikes and said, I'm tired of being in bondage. I'm tired of being in this bondage. I'm tired of being in bondage to these tracks. I want to be free. I want to be a car. I want to be a bike. And then one day, uh, the train gets his wish, and the train is put on the street. And it's paralyzed. They can't move. You know, freedom is not the freedom to do what I want. Freedom is the freedom to operate in my created order. What was I created to operate in? That is where your freedom is. And that's where Jesus came. And it seems like, oh, Jesus was restrictive when he was saying narrow is the way. And like, no, he's not restricting anything. He's saying, no, that's where true freedom is. Mm -hmm. Living in this particular way, living according to his path. And that's what uh, Thurman is alluding to. And he's saying these things. A few people actually choose to do that. Very few. Yeah. Very few people choose to pick the path of real life. Real life is living on the train tracks because you're a train. <laughs> real life is staying in the water because you're a boat. Real life is living according to a set of teachings and lessons because these teachings and lessons are catered to the perfect humanity, the perfect life. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's the stuff where, yeah, we have this freedom to be released from the bounds of uh, binds of things like you know oppression because of dignity uh strip dignity oppression because of fear and all this other stuff we can be free of that stuff so i can be a good train on these tracks hmm. yeah <laughs> so yeah man that, that's some powerful stuff and now and and you know and when in the whole when you mentioned it earlier you know that was kind of what you know the civil rights movement that was one of the that was one of the uh, phrases of the civil rights movement. Like, so how we have Black Lives Matter. Well, back during the civil rights movements, it was uh, the phrase was, well, I am a man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I yeah. am a man. Yeah. Um, and, you know, just having the ability to be free to express, I am a man. And because I'm a man, I have a right to stand in opposition to what's unjust. Mm -hmm. He kind of ends this chapter with the like he says like basically these ideas keep people from being violent mm -hmm. and keep people from being able to be conquered mm -hmm. right from within or without basically is what he says. You want to speak into that maybe end with some sure. of that or how? Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, and and that's the the unfortunate thing about you know the the fear mechanism is that option of you know, and the feeling that we have to do that, you know, so nonviolent resistance actually restores dignity. And Howard Thurman understood that. Martin Luther King understood that. Nonviolent resistance. And the problem is our world has been bent on violence since the beginning, you know. So the solution to problems is violence. Wait a minute. We have a conflict here. All right. Duel it out. Wait a minute. We have too many people in society right now. Let's get rid of some. Wait a minute. Going back to the ancient world. Wait a minute. We're having a drought. There's a curse here. We have to offer sacrifice to the God. Like violence has always been the solution. And even in these situations, when it comes to restoring dignity or overcoming fear or dealing with your fear, I mean, that's a pretty daggone good solution. If I'm afraid of you, I'll kill you. I ain't afraid of you no more. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't be, I'm not afraid of you no more. Pretty daggone good solution. Um, but the problem is, it just continues that cycle. And it just brings it back. Um, and the mindset of Thurman is, no, no, no. 
That is not the path. I mentioned the book. It's, it's not fight or flight for Thurman. No, it's not fight. Which or is fight. really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, so how does this work? And I'm gonna do this real quick. I, I mentioned the book. I was supposed to bring it this week. I forgot it. Walter Wink, nonviolence. Um, he he broke down. Let's just talk about when Jesus says, you know, if someone asks you to walk one mile, give them two miles. He breaks that down. He was like, in the context, they understood what's going on, but most of us don't understand what's going on. What he was referring to is when a Roman centurion conscripts a normal citizen. Roman centurion can conscript a normal citizen and say, you know what? Carry my weapons, carry my belongings, carry my supplies. Now, by law, they were only allowed to walk or force someone to carry their stuff for a mile. That's, that's all they were allowed to do. You can only walk with them for a mile. So, and it was a form of oppression because a man will be with his family. He'll be doing something. He'll be at work. It'll be just complete oppression because I'm Roman citizen. I'm a Roman soldier and you're just a Jew. I can treat you however I want to. And that was just in front of everybody. Everybody sees that you look like you're a grown man looking like another man's slave. Completely taking this, taking your dignity away. And Jesus says, give him two miles. But they're only allowed to walk one mile. Mm -hmm. So what happens is when you walk that one mile and they say, okay, stop, but you keep walking and saying, come on, you're going to turn the tables on. And now the man that forced you to walk with him is begging you to stop. And that's the type of approach that Howard Thurman, I believe, understood to restoring the dignity. It's not fighting. It's not running. It's acting like a man, mm -hmm. acting like a human being, forcing people to respect and understand your manhood and, and, and operating, walking in dignity. And that was the goal of the civil rights movement. Wait a minute. Or nonviolence resistance and civil rights. Wait a minute. Who looks like the lesser human being right now? Those standing there praying in peace and calm or those that are unleashing hoses on people? Who looks more inhumane? Who looks more subhuman in this moment? Mm -hmm. You know, and it completely turns the table. And that's why that stuff is so powerful. We're going to end there. Good stuff, brother. Thanks, man. Thanks for being <laughs> with me. This is fun. Having this discussion is great. Thank you so much. God bless you, brother.